And good morning, church family. We are continuing our series through the book of Revelation. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 14. Revelation chapter 14, looking at verses 14 to 20 this morning. And if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1036. As always, I'll begin our time in a word of prayer, and then we'll consider it together. Let's pray now. Our Lord, we do give you our thanks for another beautiful Lord's Day morning. We delight to worship you. And we pray that you would help us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And Lord, on this Memorial Day weekend, we also think of those who sacrificed their lives so that our nation could continue to enjoy its freedoms. We thank you for their sacrifices, Lord, and we pray that your spirit would draw near to the families of those whose lives have been lost Lord, would you comfort them in this difficult Memorial Day. Lord, we also think of those who have been willing to lay down their lives by putting on that uniform. Thank you for them, for their service. And Lord, you know that many of our families are away this weekend, enjoying that extra day away from work. And Lord, we pray that this would be just a wonderful wonderful time away for them, that it would be a time of catching up on rest, of renewing their, their relationships with family and friends who live far off, that it would be a time when they can recharge. And Lord, would you please give them safety as they travel. Please bring them back to us safe and sound and bring them back ready for more life and ministry in the days to come. And Lord, we thank you for the book of Revelation, for all that it's teaching us about the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, Lord, as we consider this small portion of the book today, that you would again awaken in us anticipation for his return, and that you would also shake any out of their complacency who might not have have closed with Christ yet, who are still keeping him at arm's length. Help them to see, Lord, that they must bow to Him, that they must receive Him. Lord, do this great work today, and we pray these things in His name. Amen. So in ancient Israel, much of the available water was tainted with bacteria and other impurities, which means that it was a lot like martial water, I guess. And it was for this reason that many of the ancient Israelites preferred to drink wine over water. Their wine was very different from our wine. Theirs was flat, it was room temperature, it was very diluted, and it had an extremely low alcoholic content. But for safety reasons, this was their beverage of choice. And the process of making this wine was very labor-intensive. To make the wine, workers would first have to plant a vineyard, And then they'd have to wait until that crop fully ripened. Then after it ripened and the the clusters of grapes were ready, they would have to walk through their vineyard with a handheld tool called a sickle. This tool had a metal handle and then it had a sharp curved blade. They would walk through the field with this sickle and they would chop down all of the clusters of grapes. 
Well, then they would have to gather all these clusters of grapes together, and then they would put them in a wine press. This was usually made out of stone, looked like a giant vat. Then they would have to crush those clusters of grapes by foot. And they found this to be the best way to do it, because in this way, the grapes would be crushed, but the seeds would not be. You don't want to crush the seeds of the grapes, because that will give you a very bitter-tasting wine. And so they found that crushing by foot was the best way. Well, the juice from the grapes would then run down the wine press, and they would run into troughs underneath the press. And then from the troughs, the juice would run into these uh, jars. And they would be left there for several weeks and allowed to ferment. And over these weeks, the, the grape juice would also distill so that what you would get in the end was something like a grape syrup. They would then have to take the syrup and mix it with water to get the wine. And generally, it was one part syrup to 20 parts water. They would mix it all together. It wasn't particularly tasty, but that fermentation would sterilize the, the bacteria, and this is what they would drink. Then another staple of the Israeli diet was bread. And this, too, was a very labor-intensive process. Of course, they would have to first plant the field, either wheat or barley. They'd have to wait for the crops to grow. And then after the grain had fully ripened, workers would again have to go through the field with their sickle, and they would have to cut down the stalks of wheat or barley. They would run their sickle at the base of the stalks, collapse the stalks, and then they would gather them up into bundles. From there, the stalks would have to be placed on the threshing floor, and this is where oxen would normally be employed to stamp on the grain. It would separate the seeds from the heads of the stalks. After that was complete, the workers would have to take a winnowing tool, which looked kind of like a rake, and they would winnow the seeds, and that would remove all of the chaff. Finally, they would have the pure seeds. They would put the seeds into jars, and then the jars could be taken home and mixed with other ingredients to make the bread. So as I say, these are very labor-intensive processes. And as the Old Testament prophets observed these processes, they found a good illustration in them for God's end times judgments. And so in the Bible, the work of running the sickle through the fields became an illustration of God gathering people up for judgment. And then the work of crushing the grain and the grapes became an illustration of God executing his end times judgments. And in today's passage, the Apostle John makes use of this imagery as well. First, the earth is pictured as a great wheat field, and then it's pictured as a giant grape vineyard. And then the unregenerate of the world are pictured as grain and then as grapes. And the harvesting of the grain and the grapes is used as an illustration of God's judgments on the world of unbelief right at the inauguration of Christ's earthly kingdom. The purpose of today's text is to offer us yet another preview of those end times judgments. But though the images are jarring, I think the key message of this text is very uplifting. The key message of this text is that Christ will be victorious over all of his enemies. Christ will be victorious 
over all of his enemies. And what that means, friends, is that his kingdom will come. And we will all be a part of it if we are found to be in Christ. Now let's see this together this morning. We begin in verse 14. Let's see how these end times judgments will play out. First step we find here is that Christ is going to step off his throne in heaven. He's going to descend to the earth in all of his divine glory. Look at the start of verse 14 with me. The Apostle John is writing here. He says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud... A white cloud. Now, a white cloud is a symbol of divine glory. It's used all over the Old Testament as a visual depiction of the glory of God. And that's what it will signify at the second coming of Christ as well. And this is precisely how Christ said he would come back to earth. Matthew 24, he said, They will see me coming on the clouds of heaven. It's also how the angels describe the second coming of Christ in Acts chapter 2. Remember there, Christ has ascended up into heaven, and his disciples have watched him ascend through the clouds. They continue gawking up at the sky for a long time, and finally an angel says to Christ's disciples, Why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you, will come back in the same manner as you saw him go. So he went up through the clouds, he's going to come back down. Upon the clouds. This is also how the Apostle John began the book of Revelation. So, chapter 1 said, Behold, he is coming with the clouds. This is how the end will begin. Christ is going to descend from heaven in all of his divine glory. And what a stark contrast this coming will be to the first coming of Christ when he was born in a manger to impoverished parents and spent most of his life in absolute obscurity, only spending the last three years of his life with any kind of public recognition. And on that first coming, he was subjected to sickness and pain and ridicule and finally to a violent death. But friends, that's because the purpose of Christ's second coming is different than the purpose of his first At his first coming, Christ came in humility to offer himself as a substitute for sinners. And so he came, robed himself in human flesh, lived a life of humiliation, finally going to the cross as a sacrifice of atonement for our sins. But his second coming is not going to be for that. No, at his second coming, he will be a conquering king. And so he won't come in humility, he'll come in glory. He'll come on the clouds of heaven. But we also see in this verse that he'll come in his glorified humanity. So full deity will be on display, but his humanity also will be on display. Look at the next part of verse 14. Again, John writes, I look, behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man. Now that title... Son of Man, comes right out of Daniel chapter 7. It's the title Jesus applied to himself more than any other title during his first advent. This title speaks to the dual nature of Christ as both divine and human. He is God and he is man. It also speaks to his role as our Messiah, Being the God-man is what qualifies him to be the Messiah. He can be the perfect substitute for men because he is man. He can also be the perfect intercessor before God because he is God and man. 
The title Son of Man is a precious one to Christ. And it also reminds us here that Christ's incarnation was not a temporary state for him. In other words, when Christ came into the world the first time, put on human flesh, born of the Virgin Mary, this was going to be a permanent state for Christ. He didn't become human and then cease to become human after his resurrection, no. He became human and forever and always he would remain the God-man, perfect mediator between God and men. Friends, Christ is coming back. He is coming in power and glory. He will be seen in all of his divine majesty. He will also be seen in all of his glorified humanity. But now we continue with the verse, and we notice the posture that he will take as he comes. It says he will be seated on the cloud, and he will have a golden crown on his head. Now, the fact that he is seated as he returns speaks to his calm confidence. You see, when Christ comes back to take the throne of his father David, to inaugurate that earthly kingdom, he's not going to come with any doubts, any fears about what the outcome of all of this will be. Christ is going to come knowing who he is, knowing what he's capable of doing, coming knowing, knowing that his kingdom will be established. And so he is seated absolutely tranquil as he makes his descent. And then this crown that he's wearing, the Greek word here is Stephanos. This is the victor's crown. And it's because Christ is coming back as a conquering king. You notice he'll come not just as a king, but also as a judge. Very end of verse 14. It says he will have a sharp sickle in his hand. Again, that is the tool of the farmer who is going to harvest a crop. Christ is holding this sickle as he descends because he is going to sweep it over the world and he is going to gather up all of the world's unregenerate. He's going to take them to their final judgment and he will have his kingdom with the regenerate alone. Upon his father's signal, he will wield that sickle. Let's look now at verse 15. Verse 15 begins with another figure. This one's an angel. It says, another angel came out of the temple. This is the heavenly temple. This is the one we learned about back in Revelation 4. This is where God the Father's throne is placed. This angel is apparently emerging from the heavenly temple by the will of God the Father, and he has a message for God the Son. Continue reading. Another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sits on the cloud, that is, calling out to Christ. And here's the message that the Father wants to convey to the Son. Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Here we see the perfect timing of God the Father. You understand that from eternity past, God had decreed that there would be a kingdom and that his son would take his place as the king. He had decreed from all eternity that this would be so, and yet there was a specific time in which these things would take place. And now we see God declaring that the time has come. History has had its final rotation. 
It is time for the Son to return, to take His throne, to judge His enemies, to begin that millennial reign. And so Christ descends, the Father now gives the signal, but here we also see the perfect obedience of God the Son. Even as He has stepped off His heavenly throne and begun His descent, He has not yet wielded that sickle. He is waiting for His Father to say, Now, now is the moment We see the decree of God. We see the obedience of the Son. And my friends, it is at that moment when that angel gives that order from God the Father that the Son will finally, finally sweep all of his enemies away just as a farmer harvests his grain. Look at verse 16. It says, And so he who sat on the throne swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Friends, it's going to be that easy for him. Just that easy. Just as easy as a farmer running a sickle at the base of a stalk of wheat. That is how easy it will be for the Lord Jesus Christ to sweep away all of the earth's unregenerate The Antichrist, the false prophet, all who took the Antichrist mark, all the regenerate of all the world, those who refuse to bow to him. It'll be just as easy as that for him to take them all away. And with that, the great tribulation will be over. It'll happen that fast. In Luke chapter 17, Jesus said this, quote, as lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. On that day, there will be two in one bed. One will be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And this is not talking about the rapture, you understand. This is talking about Christ coming as a judge at the end of the tribulation. He is coming down. He takes one away for judgment. The other is left to participate in the kingdom. Two women working in a field or grinding at the mill. One is taken, the other left. That is, one taken away in judgment. The other left to participate in the kingdom. This is how Jesus said it would be. And now, just to reinforce the finality of this judgment, the Apostle John tells the story again. Only now, with new imagery and with more detail. That takes us to verses 17 through 19. Verse 17 says, Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Now this accords very well with Jesus' words in Matthew 24, where he says that when he comes as king and as judge, he's going to be assisted by the angels. He's going to send the angels out, and they'll scatter to the four winds. And so Christ comes, he has a sickle, and now we see another angel coming And he's from heaven, and he has a sickle. Christ will be assisted by his angels. In now verse 18 it says, And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. Now this takes us back to Revelation chapter 8. There we learned that in God's heavenly temple there is also a heavenly altar. And chapter 8 of this book gave us a beautiful explanation for this altar. It's where the prayers of God's saints are carried. 
And so on earth, all of God's people are praying to him. They are praying that the kingdom would come, that God's will would be done. They're praying that Christ would finally come. And Revelation 8 says, all those prayers of all the saints, they waft up to heaven and they find their way to the, to the altar of God's heavenly temple. And there the prayers of the saints are burned on the altar. It's, it's an act of worship that God's people should pray to him. And they're burned continuously on that altar. Apparently this is the angel who tends to that fire. And the smoke of the burning wafts up to the throne of God where he hears his people's prayers and he answers them in the manner and in the timing that he deems best. And here in chapter 18, we, excuse me, chapter 14, verse 18, we see this angel who's responsible for tending the fire of the altar. He is tending to the prayers of the saints. And now he has a message to deliver. It says, and he called out with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. So one angel speaking to another angel. And he says, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth. For its grapes are ripe. Now you'll notice here the imagery has changed from a field of wheat to now a vineyard of grapes. But the order is the same and the, the action is the same. The direction has come from God the Father himself. And he delivers it to the angel tending the fire of the altar. And now the message is going down to the angels with Christ making the descent. It's take that sickle and harvest those grapes. Scoop them up. Haul them all away. It's the order for the unregenerate to be carried off to judgment. And now verse 20, the judgment is carried out. It says, and the wine press was trodden. So the grapes have been gathered. They've been thrown into the wine press. And now the grapes are being crushed. God's judgments are being executed. This is a description of Christ and his angels bringing the Antichrist and the false prophet and all who had the mark of the Antichrist, all the regenerate, all who didn't bow the knee to King Jesus all meeting their bitter end. Christ is putting down these enemies once and for all. And along with them, all of the tyranny, all of the misery, all of the, the sin and the evil, it is all being stamped out. Stamped out like grapes in a wine press. And it says the judgment will be carried out, middle of verse 20, outside the city. Outside the city. Now, I believe this is a reference to Jerusalem. You understand that Jerusalem will have a central place in the coming kingdom of Christ. It'll be his capital city. The throne of David will be there in Jerusalem. And it's from there that he will reign over all of the other nations of the earth. And here we find the world's unregenerate being judged outside of that city. I think this speaks to the fact that they will have no part in Christ's kingdom. They will not even have the dignity of being judged within his capital city. They'll go outside the city and face their end. 
And then finally, the end of verse 20, we see the gruesome aftermath of all of these judgments. It says, And blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. That is, for about 200 miles. Now, friends, later in this book, we'll learn that Christ's return is going to prompt a violent response from Antichrist and all of his forces. It tells us that that as soon as the unregenerate of the world see Christ and his angels and his saints descending on those clouds from heaven, they're going to suddenly stop fighting each other and they're going to redirect their efforts to him. They're going to try to stop him from coming and establishing his kingdom. Revelation calls this the battle of Armageddon. But their efforts will be absolutely futile, and with just a word from Christ, all of these godless armies will be put down. And then it will all be over. And I believe that's what this is talking about, the aftermath of that final rebellion against God outside of Jerusalem, the great judgment that they will all meet there. After this, Christ will receive his royal crown. He'll sit on the throne of David. His millennial reign will begin, and we'll all be right there with him if we know Christ. We'll be right there with him. And my friends, as we reflect on this text together, I think we're confronted with some very practical lessons here. Very practical lessons. Lesson number one, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. My friends, God is gracious. You know that he's gracious. But God is also morally resolute. God is determined to put down evil, to put down those who are committed to the practice of evil without repentance. He is absolutely committed to putting that all away. Friends, nobody is going to be able to stop him once he has begun that process. You understand the power of God, the power of his son, Jesus Christ? He has more power in his little fingertip than all of the combined energy of a trillion burning suns. He's that strong. Do you think anybody can resist God when he has decided to act? There's no way. No way. One word can put the armies of the world down. And so please, please, do not set yourself against the God of heaven or against his son, Jesus Christ. Instead, accept his gospel offer. God really does love this world. And he loves you. You're an image bearer of God. God loves this world so much that he sent his son into it. He did this for our sake. He allowed his son to come into the world to hide his glory behind human flesh, to live like we do, to show us what God is like and through his teachings to show us what God expects of us. And then he sent his own son to the cross where his son bore the full wrath that our sins deserve. He did that for us. 
all of the judgments that we read about here in Revelation, and including in our text today, all of those judgments were put upon Christ at the cross so that anybody who should repent of their sin and trust in God through Christ would not have to face that wrath themselves. That's how it works. Either we stubbornly refuse to bow to King Jesus and in the end face the wrath of God on our own, or we bow the knee to King Jesus, repenting of sin, trusting in him, and all of that wrath is redirected to Christ, and he takes it for us. We're either covered by the payment that Christ made, or we make the payment ourselves. There is no alternative. And so, friend, please, please see the futility of shaking your fist at the God of heaven. Bow to King Jesus. Make him your Lord. See that he is the kind of a Lord that you would want to be ruled by. He's not like the rulers of this sinful world. He's a good king. He's a king who makes everything better. Will you not receive him? You know, you can do so right now, even from your seat. All you have to do is express your repentance and faith to God. You can do it in prayer. God, I repudiate, repudiate my sin. I don't want to live that way anymore. I don't want to live apart from you anymore. I want to be reconciled to you, God. I claim Christ. I claim his life, death, and resurrection for me. I bow to him. I want to be his disciple. Pray that prayer and mean it and you will be saved. And then talk to Pastor Scott or myself afterwards so we can lead you down the next spiritual steps. But then that takes us to lesson number two. Lesson number two is this. For those who have received Christ, friends, we ought to live in the reality that we are on the winning side. And I mean that. (laughs) Do you understand that Christ is already king? He's already king. He is king of Calhoun County. He's king of Kalamazoo County. He's king of Michigan, king of the United States, king of all the nations. And one day, my friends, he is going to step off of his throne in heaven. He's going to come down to earth, and he is going to assert his kingship over the nations of this world directly. He's going to take his place on the throne of his father David. The government of the world shall be placed upon his shoulders, and he shall rule with righteousness and goodness. It's going to happen, friends. It's going to happen. And we Christians need to live like we believe it will. Here's what I think it would look like if we did actually believe this. First, it would mean that we would give ourselves to the church like never before. We would give ourselves to the church. Why? Because the church is the center of God's activity in the world today. And we would be busy about making disciples for Christ because we believe that kingdom's coming and we want that kingdom to be filled to overflowing with citizens. And those citizens are made as the church of Jesus Christ spreads the gospel and people believe it and receive it. They get their citizenship card for that kingdom. If you believe that kingdom is coming, you're going to want a lot of people to be with you to enjoy it. You're going to want to make disciples through the local church. It also is going to mean that you're not going to be terribly preoccupied with politics. Now, 
We have a responsibility as Christians to be good citizens. We are, we are dual citizens, right? Kingdom of man, kingdom of God. We're going to stay informed about the issues of our day. We're going to advocate for righteousness. We're going to cast our vote for righteous rulers. We're going to do that because that is what Christian citizens are called to do. And yet, if we really believe in this coming kingdom of Christ and the ultimacy of that kingdom, then we're not going to become overly preoccupied with the cultural and social and political squabbles of the present day. Every time we face a political setback or a new legal or social or cultural setback, instead of acting as if our world has come to an end, you know how we're going to respond instead if we really believe in this coming kingdom of God? Instead, we're just going to snicker and we're going to say, a temporary setback. This is just a temporary setback. Christ will have his way with this world. He will be king one day, and we will be there with him. And all of the evil of the world will be wiped away. That's how we would act if we really believed in the coming of his kingdom. Then finally, friends, I think we'd also become a people of prayer. Become a people of prayer. And I think the content of our prayers would sound something like this. Say this prayer with me if you know it. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.